Race matters. 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 As always, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded and produced on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present and extend that respect to First Nations communities across this country. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to a bonus episode of Race Matters, recorded live at the Australian Museum on Thursday, January 21. As part of an annual event titled Nalu Warawi Murray, We Stand Strong. This panel discussion you're going to hear is titled Why You Can't Speak For Us, and it's hosted by Sarah Khan. Here's Sarah now. Hi everyone, um, so I'm Sarah Khan. I am a proud Wawan woman from Central West New South Wales. Um, I grew up on Darawal country in Campbelltown. Um, I have with me some pretty immense women with me on stage tonight. Um, these are the types of women that are very known within our communities as First Nations women. They're the backbone of it, they're the matriarchs of it, and they're the ones that um, are often unheard of but need to be listened to the most, in my opinion. Um, so we have with us Alicia Johnson and Tamika Tai. I'll let them both introduce themselves, please, though. So Alicia, can you give us a bit of an introduction and who you are, where you come from, what you do, and why you're here? Uh, hello, everyone. I'm a Barkindji, Lachilachi, Birigabi, and Waka Waka woman. So my father comes from a place called Wakanya, and my mum's from a place called Sherberg or Sherberg Mission. I'm currently a PhD candidate at Sydney University, and I'm writing my thesis about the Darling River and the impacts um, of its devastation on the Barkindji people. So that's a bit about me. Uh, my name is Tamika Tai. I'm a Gomoroi Dungari Biripa woman uh, from Moree, Bogabilla, Tumala. Should I keep going? Um, <laughs> um, I am based in Newcastle. I am a student at Macquarie University. I'm a member of FIST and Gamilaray Next Generation. And um, you'll see me on the front line. Also, before um, we begin, I also just want to acknowledge that we are meeting and gathering today on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been tended to for um, many, many generations before us. This is the first point of contact for colonisation and it's always an important thing to remember that no matter where you go on this land, no matter how many signs of colonisation you see, whether it be out in the bush or still in these cities, it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So before we begin, um, well, we get into the nitty gritty stuff, what everyone came for. Um, <laughs> This title, this question, rhetorical question, statement, why you can't speak for us. Um, Alicia and Tamika, in your own words, how would you um, say that this statement, because this is a common thought we have of um, why you can't speak for us, it's a common question that is in our minds all the time. How has, it, how has the journey of this question kind of begun for you and where did it lead you to um, towards the back end of a pretty big year, which was 2020? 
Uh, for me personally, the concept of, or the idea or the statement of um, why you can't speak for us um, resonates because for 230 years we've had people try to do that and uh, we haven't gotten very far as um, far as I'm concerned. People may believe different but um, we still have a very long way to go and we won't get anywhere unless we are allowed our own voice and um, we have the, the knowledge and we've been here for for millennia, since time immemorial. Um, so being able to speak for ourselves um, on issues that occur and uh, issues that we face is important to acknowledge because you aren't us, so we, only we can speak for ourselves. Exactly. I think it was very similar sentiments and like I guess I'd want to speak like generationally as well from my perspective because my parents didn't get these opportunities. So my parents were voiceless and even the capacity that I'm speaking to you at today, you know, we have to navigate what is acceptable in a space like this, you know, what's appropriate for non-Indigenous people to be able to conceptualise. So even though that we have a voice, you guys have to understand that it's constantly regulated. It's not 100% our truth because you can't always handle it and it's also the um thing of when we're never heard either so i feel like especially coming at the end of last year a common sentiment that we were all feeling as first nations people was um we were getting asked lots of questions of us. So there's lots of people coming to the table being like, okay, so like, why can't I speak for you? Why can't I, <laughs> how do I participate? How do I be a good little white person when I come into your space? And then it's the thing of like, we give them all of the information, all of the resources, even if it's not like um, we're frustrated by it, but we give the answers to it. It's the other thing of like, there's so much literature out there on all of this. Um, there's so much reading and research and resources out there, critical race thinking that's, you know, been going on for decades. And we can provide that, we provide those resources, but the thing is sometimes it's not even being heard. How are you um, feeling in that sense of whether or not what you're saying is actually being listened to? <laughs> Sarah! <laughs> Uh, personally, I think, as you said, you know, there's literature out there. Um, our people have been doing the work to decolonise since invasion, you know. Um, it was, invasion was never something that was just accepted. Um, so we've been fighting on the front line for 233 years. Um, so the work has always been done. Um, it's just a matter of you listening. So true. And I think exactly what you're saying, like, Whatever your lived experience is as well, so like whatever your background is or even your interests, we have the capacity to connect to you via that. So I feel like, again, black people, we're just constantly in this own category of blackness. But what Australia starts, need, starts to need to do is recognise that we're people. So we have interests, we have passions, we have emotions, we have experiences. And if I don't resonate with you, one of these sisters will. And then if the next sister doesn't resonate with you, you can find one that does. Because I feel like that's your responsibility. Just like everyone else, if you don't like the messenger that's giving it to you, you still need to listen to the message. I think that's why I'm tired, because I'm just tired of always um, having to, A, present myself in a manner that is receptive, and then if I'm not, they kind of just switch off. You have to take that responsibility and you have to go find the right messenger, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, no, 100%. And everything that you were just saying then, it's also like asking for our experience, but also putting it to the fringe. So they don't want our experience to kind of be at the center of matters that are pertaining to us. So that's another challenge in itself because then it's up to us to then like center ourselves in whatever space we go into while also trying to protect our well-being. Do you guys feel the same way there? Absolutely, I feel the same way. Um, I personally think, you know, we live in a country where um, our government doesn't even acknowledge our sovereignty. Um, so a, a country that doesn't um, acknowledge sovereignty does not believe in justice is what I think. Um, so when we as individuals and you as allies um, want to hear from black people, it needs to come from all avenues, from the ground up and from the from the top to the bottom too. So, you know, while we can speak here today, um, the issues are right throughout this country in terms of hearing from Aboriginal people. Yeah, I guess um, adding on to that, like, you know, even being in this space today, again, I know I keep talking about my parents, but it's so important. Like, these forums were not happening. People were not coming out of their day to come and listen to our lineage. You know, it was not happening. We need to recognise that, but we also need to recognise there's so much more to do. Because um, I feel like, again, Australia really loves... Uh, you know, putting stickers on everyone. Like, you did a great job, you did a great job, but it's just not good enough. And um, if we're asking you to do more as Indigenous people, we are giving you guys a lot back as well. You know, we're not just expecting you to be active participants in change. We're working really, really hard um, behind the scenes, if that makes sense. And it also um, really matters as well who they're coming to for the resources because there was a big conversation um, happening amongst black women last year in regards to accountability versus cancel culture and um, how accountability works for black fellow communities, for black people. And, um, you know, accountability is a part of our law, essentially. And a big problem that we were having was a lot of white people coming to the table and getting resources for us, but by people that weren't particularly like accepted within the community that they are in. So how do you um, kind of reconcile, I hate that word reconcile, um, <laughs> but um, how do you, how would you kind of like explain that frustration as well when you are speaking with someone that's trying to, you know, get the information from us, try and garner a better understanding, but then they go, oh, but so-and-so has said different to you. And it's someone, like how you were saying there, Tamika, before, like they're not coming from the bottom, they're going straight to the top and they're going to like people that aren't particularly claimed within their community, people that haven't been a part of their community for a long time either. So is that like a common frustration that you have as well with um, people trying to better understand our experience and um, our livelihood? Yeah, definitely frustration that I see um, on many fronts. I believe, you know, in the academic space, I see it as a student, um, as, you know, somebody in the workforce. I see it within my workplace and just as a community member in general. Um, I see so many people um, trying to you know, reach out and understand uh, more about who we are and, and, and our people and our history and how to <laughs> make this place a better place for us all. Uh, but I find um, it's tough because 
When we have people, you know, going back to what you said, Sarah, in terms of cancel culture versus accountability, I, I mean, for me personally uh, and within my family, um, accountability is at the forefront. Um, I don't do any of my work without consulting with my family. Um, they are my biggest critics. Um, so for me to be able to... Um, consult with them and yarn with them about the work that I'm doing um, is important because everything that I do um, comes back to my community. Um, I work within my community and for my family um, to better, you know, opportunities for my family and to allow you, Mob, to understand who we are and who I am. Um, so the accountability on, on a personal level is important. Um, the accountability on a community front is important too because as blackfellas, all we do is try to work for our mob to make, you know, to better our communities, right? So um, the, the, the accountability on a community front, um, I believe, is most important because all we want is for our mob to be safe. So for that, there has to be accountability. People can't be delivering programs as such and, and not be accountable to the community that they serve. So if you're not accountable to the community that you serve, how do you know that you are bettering them or the community that they are a part of? As opposed to cancel culture... <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like that's very different. Uh, cancel culture would be something like throw, you know, throw in Trump, you know? cancel culture, get him out. Um, but a accountability, on the other hand, is we want our, we want our communities to be powerful. We want our, our culture to be strong. We want our kids to know who they are and where they come from. So when you hold somebody within your community accountable, it's all for the better of us, not to cancel somebody out. 100%. And um, like I've, I, we all have spoken countless times about white people also realising how they're beneficiaries of colonisation, of white supremacy. Like, there's a lot of work that goes into unpacking that and unlearning that and understanding that, you know, the power that you gain from these structures comes at the exploitation and the detriment of um, our health, our education, our land, our children, our self-determination, like, our fundamental existence. And... Like I said before, there's, a, there's an abundance of literature and writing out there to learn more about it. But then there's also the thing of trying to protect ourselves and protect our space when someone is, when a white person's coming to us and asking us, like, how can I unlearn this? How can I be better? And sometimes it can feel like a form of interrogation, but how do you kind of, like, ensure your well-being and, and protect your space as well, even in the online space, like protecting your DMs <laughs> and um, protecting your families from this type of um, question. That's a really good question. And um, it's something that I struggle with every day because the reality is for black women um, in this country, when I say black, I mean B-L-A-K, and that is relating to the uh, indigenous diaspora within Australia. But as a black woman, it is a constant struggle. So I'm not going to sit here and give you um, a sob story because that's not me, but I want you to know, and we have to start speaking about the difficulties of our lives 
every single day we're reminded that we're dispossessed from this country, every single day that we're reminded we're dispensable. So if I disappear, if something happens to me tragically or if I go down the wrong path, if I make one wrong decision, it doesn't matter that I don't have a criminal record. It doesn't matter that I have three, four degrees. It doesn't matter that I'm a great member of my community. At the end of the day, I'm an Indigenous woman. So I'm just um, erased. And that is a really um, detrimental characteristic to have to carry with you your whole existence. But I want to add another element to that. So our parents don't sit down and say, well, I would like to say a lot of Indigenous people in the room probably agree. Our parents don't sit down and say, you're worthless. You're black. You're nothing. You're going to be nothing. You're going to be no one. You're going to be a drunk. You're going to be a petrol sniffer. That's what the rest of Australia does. So any interaction you have, I guess, with an Indigenous person, I want you to recognise the internal struggle that we're going through, but also recognise the external one that we're going through. And that is those race-power relations that you see around us every day, but also recognise that there's something internally happening, and that is a product of colonisation and white supremacy that you guys will never see, you may hear a bit about, but you'll never truly understand it. And that's exactly what white supremacy wants to keep happening. Make me shame now. <laughs> I think, um, you know, another, another perspective is um, we're forever behind the eight ball. We are forever behind the eight ball. Uh, you look at um, programs such as Close the Gap, right? We'll just use that as, as an example. Um, Aboriginal people are dying at rates earlier than, than non-Aboriginal people. But then let's look at the education system. Like we're just cont like in continuously behind the eight ball, whatever avenue you look at. You know, for non-Aboriginal people who I'm friends with, who buy property, their parents contribute to their purchase of their house, and we can't even buy our land back. Like. We can't, you know, we're saving, we work our asses off to buy, to save, to buy, if it's even an option. Sometimes it's not, you know. Uh, you have white people who inherit property and inherit wealth. We are forever behind the eight ball. So whether you like it or not, you being a white person uphold systems of white supremacy. So to unpack that yourself without being fragile is a task in its own. But coming to the table where we feel comfortable and where we want to meet is where we progress, where we want to meet, not on anyone else's terms. So understanding that we are forever behind the eight ball in avenues where you, realize, you may not even realise you are so privileged and unpacking that and then be willing to understand where you contribute to, um, you know, to allowing us to be and allowing us to exist as, as black people. And even just the understanding of when we walk on our own land, and I'm talking about walking around in wealthy suburbs, do you guys feel a bit of, do you feel bitterness and sadness when you walk around quite wealthy spaces that belong to First Nations people, but they're so inaccessible for us? I wonder, truthfully, like truthfully, I wonder, I look at these big houses in these wealthy suburbs and I'm like, okay, so how many black people died on that lot of land? And then I wonder how many generations this house has been in someone's family. And then I wonder how many hours that person works. And then I wonder how many mouths that person feeds. 
I guess mine's a similar sentiment, like, because I'm from uh, out west, so I'm from a... I grew up in a place called uh, Broken Hill, but my family's originally from Orkanya, and, like, you'll drive along a main road to get to Broken Hill from Orkanya, and there's, like, fences, so there's, like, literal fences, and on each fence, the family's names on the gate, you know, and some of these fences are, like, 100 years old, 120 years old. It's just, like, it does my head in to think... A, what it was like for my ancestors when they traditionally cut through or that was their land or they slept there or they inhabited it. But again, it's just these fences and these last names are a constant reminder of dispossession and they still get to continue that in the 21st century. And if it's a mailbox, if it's, if it's you know, your name across your door, like that is colonisation and that is a constant reminder that we don't even belong in our own land. And I want to make another point. My mob or my people, Barkindji, or we call ourselves Wimpicha, we are uh, one of the largest or the largest native title claim in um, New South Wales. So we have land but we still don't have land so we do what you want us to do we go to court we fight like our elders fight their whole lives I'm not talking like 20 years I'm talking like 40 50 years right and with our life expectancy but then you'll drive home and then you'll see um the, the Petersons or the Pattersons and you're reminded that you know what you ain't you're not getting that land you're not getting it back and I suppose just to add on to the native title aspect today is the um anniversary of the death of Eddie Marbo actually um and then when it comes to, to things such as native title, um, it's never sovereignty. It's never sovereignty and it's never land back. So what you do is you give us the crumbs and then you say you can only eat these crumbs or you can only fish from these crumbs on our terms because at the end of the day, native title in itself can always be extinguished for a road that benefits the community or a mine that benefits the capital of the state or anything, anything that doesn't benefit blacks. And we have to ask for permission to go on our own land as well. Like I have to, whenever I'm back home, like whenever we want to go emu nesting or crayfishing, like, you know, these are practices that our, you know, our families have been doing for generations at thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But we can't, we have to go and ask for permission now to go and do it. And then we also have to make sure that we have good relationships with the white people in the community, the property owners, so that we can go and do that. So when people talk about reconciliation, we're always, we don't have to reconcile nothing. Like we're reconciling all the time and you don't even realize it. I think the fact that we don't riot every day is reconciling. And that's the thing, because when we talk about this, what ends up happening with, if we're talking to someone that is quite fragile in their whiteness, we get gaslit. The gaslighting then happens and it's, you know, all of a sudden we get the um, aggressive label put onto us. Or it's, or it's a political statement. They, 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 a, they, yeah. bl- put you, they put you in the category of a, of a radical or, or political. But I feel like when your life depends on someone's political choice in, in a building such as Parliament House, um, how do you escape a, a title of a radical you know, um, you're just trying to exist <laughs> in a colony yeah, yeah. and you're radical. Yeah, yeah. Asking for the bare minimum sometimes. Yeah, like a breath. <laughs> um, and this leads into the very popular date, January 26. How 
this date has changed quite drastically in the public consciousness of understanding it, even in just the last five years and how we've gone from change the date to abolish the date altogether, abolish any form of celebration of Australia. I mean, like, we'll get into that in a minute, but um, for people that are trying to understand how to engage in this, because I feel like, this, I feel like um, Invasion Day has become quite an easy entry point into um, allyship and activism for white people. Do you feel, do you feel the same way? Yeah, I definitely feel, um, definitely feel like it's a, a topic that comes around, you know, every, every year. Um, but it's, it's something I feel that happens um, for me. You have like Christmas and then you have New Year's and then you're prepping for Invasion Day. Yeah. So you start off a new year feeling like help. But yes, I definitely think that it's an avenue for, for white people to um, approach their journey on allyship, yes. Yeah. Do you feel the same way, sis? Like, do you think that Invasion Day is a good space if people are wanting to engage with allyship or understand their whiteness or are there other aspects that they need to understand first before they come into Invasion Day? that's a great question and I want to intertwine Invasion Day and then I want to intertwine that with Australia Day. So very similar uh, similar what's happened with Australia Day with other um, ethnicities, so other people coming from other countries or even if you're not, I guess, a settler like your family made their own journey to this continent. You have been uh, guys, you've been manipulated into this false sense of nationhood. So everything that you know about Australia Day is a lie, right? It's not true. Um, um, so first, that's the first point. <laughs> but the second point is, make sure you're not doing the same thing with Invasion Day. Make sure that you're not being told something. Make sure that you're being learned something. And um, I have a daughter that has a non-Indigenous father. He is the first generation in this country. So my daughter is the first one born on this continent from his lineage. And through that experience, I've been able to really w witness the real impacts of white supremacy. So white supremacy is not just impacting us as Indigenous people but it's impacting everybody, you know? And we have to understand that if you're talking about misogyny, if you're talking about homophobia or transphobia, whatever it is, um, wealthy um, and poverty, you know, if we're talking about those issues, they stem from white supremacy. And let's interrelate that to um, our survival day or our invasion day. Apply the critical lens, evaluate what you know about it, and then evaluate why you're there. Because we don't want you to be there to enjoy the food trucks or enjoy the crop. We want you to be there to enjoy our survival. Well, I, I tend to, you know, as black people, we always get asked every January, what do you do on January 26? You know, and it's, it's, it's hard. It's a tough subject. But I always like to pose the question back. Why do you celebrate? Because for me, I don't. Um, but for me, my question is, do you celebrate? Is it the um, refugee detention that you celebrate? Is it, you know, tell me, because that's what this country is. This country is um, a country that doesn't acknowledge its first people. Um, it's a country that has allyships with countries um, on a foreign um, level that um, <laughs> executes war crimes in countries and then holds their refugees in detention when they try and seek refuge in another country. So what is it that you celebrate? Uh, because if it's not the refugee detention, is it the mental health rates of all Australians? Or is it the domestic violence? Or do you celebrate 
the deaths in custody or do you celebrate the women that die at the hands of the men in this country? Is it the kids who are homeless? Is it the rest of the homeless population? Or do you, do you celebrate, hang on, let me ask, do you celebrate the kids who are locked up at the age of 12? What is it? What do you celebrate? You tell me. And I think all of that also links into, and you kind of took a step ahead of me before with it, with this idea of Australia. And attached to that is the Australian identity. So how would you define the Australian identity and what needs to come after realising that's probably not a real thing? <laughs> me, personally, um, my bloodline has been on this continent for millennia, you know, but it doesn't mean that I don't acknowledge my other heritages. Um, I am Lebanese, I'm Irish, and I find it interesting um, and I laugh about it quite honestly, um, because I'm born of resistance. I'm born of nations that have been colonised and nations that have continued resistance. Um, so for me, um, I, I don't know what, <laughs> what the Australian identity is other than my own, and I know it's, it's, it's real, and I know it's been here since, then, since before anyone else. Um, but, you know, that false Australian identity, um, to me, I question, you know, looking at my own lineage, I question where, where were your family members and where, where does your lineage originate from? Because this continent, I seen your post the other day, Sarah, about, um, you know, people who were um, convicts. How do, you, how, do you, how do you celebrate coming to a country that you had no part um, in, in decision-making? Uh, so for me, it's like, is it even a thing? What well, you know, this. Let's let's not forget that this country's illegal. <laughs> what are you celebrating? Well, I, I ask, how do you challenge the Australian identity that's been cultivated over the last two hundred and thirty years? Go find out where you come from. Find out where you come from because it's not here. I think we're a reminder, you know, Indigenous people are a constant reminder that being Australian is fictitious. It is a lie. You can call it terra nullius, you can call it Australia, you can call it, what do the Dutch call it? Uh, I forget. New, new, new Holland. Bang, she said Bankstown, you want to go away? That's where I'm from. Um, yeah, New Holland. You know, you can call this joint whatever you want to call it, but we are just a constant reminder of uh, continued connection to continent. And most importantly, guys, I will never, ever be Australian. Never, ever be Australian. That word will never, ever be my identity. But why? Not because I've made that conscious decision, but this government continuously, systematically, structurally, uh, in the hierarchy, in power, in nuances, in beauty, in body, in skin color, in features, every aspect of what it means to be Australian, blackness is put as a polarized opposite. And we have to remember that. And you may think, oh, well, you know, we're recognizing indigenous um, participation in this country, or they're involving us in diversity. Diversity is not inclusion. Diversity is diversity. We will never be a part of this. It will never be homogenous. And most importantly, I don't want it to be. You forgot wealth, because that's all stolen. Um, when it comes to 
Invasion Day as well and how the conversation has really changed in the last, like, five to six years. I mean, like, we saw the Change the Date campaign really gear up, um, yeah, around, like, five or six years ago. Um, maybe even just, like, five years ago, I think, yeah. And um, I've even seen a lot of... Because the conversation's now grown into abolish the date altogether. Like, we don't want to change the date... We just want it to. We just don't. We don't want to celebrate on any day because there's nothing to be celebrated because nothing has changed. Colonization is ongoing, and for many other reasons. And I've even seen mob online, frontline mob, even saying like, "Look, I was the one five years ago chanting, change the date." And I've done the learning to recognise that's not what I want. That's not what we want, you know, this has changed. And I've done that learning. And I think a lot of mob have as well. Like, even I did, like, I was sitting there going like, yeah, change the date, hashtag change the date, whatever. And then, you know, as we've all kind of spoken and, you know, listened to each other within um, each other's communities as well, our critical thinking and our own um, collective consciousness has grown heaps and immensely too. And so that's within the space of five years. Why can't the rest of them come to that type of unlearning then as well. If we can do that in five years and go from change to that and admit it as well, admit, like, look, five years ago I was singing something that's probably a bit more problematic now, change the date. So why do you think other people can't, like, white people can't even just, like, grasp the first step of unlearning? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it, it comes back to that... Um conversation we had a little earlier about coming to the table and understanding um, what our thoughts are and who we are as people um, on our terms, you know. Do we really want a voice in government, in a government that's illegal, or do we really want to recognise our sovereignty? Um, so understanding um, that we don't want to be at a table that we don't feel comfortable at. So if you want to yarn with us, you come sit with us. Um, so... That, that would be the first step of un unlearning. Uh, but yet, you know, within our own communities, we're, we're learning new things um, ourselves as, as we go, you know. Um, we're always talking with our, you know, with our older people and with, with our with ourselves, you know, within our, our sisterhood. Um, so, you know, we're, we're learning that ourselves. You know, as you said, Sarah, five years ago, you know, majority of us would have been having that conversation about change the date rather than, um, you know, what's happening at the moment, the, the demands to abolish the date. Uh, but, you know, having that conversation, coming to the table when we, when we want to talk um, and on our terms. But I think, you know, moving into, into the conversation and into the demands of um, abolishing the date for myself, personally, um, now I look at the calendar and I think, well... You pick a day, if it's not January 26th, you pick a day that you want to celebrate all of those things that I spoke about earlier, because <laughs> they're all issues that we still need to fix. Um, and, you know, we've, we've got real healing to do in this country to begin with. Um, so whenever you want to celebrate, you let me know, and I'm pretty sure um, we would be able to find something on the calendar um, for over 230 years of um, resistance, but 230 years of a colonial war, there would be a massacre. There would be a, a rape of a black woman. There would be kids buried in the ground with their heads kicked off. So you pick a day you want to celebrate this country that's illegal, this country that continues to oppress not only black people, but every person of colour. You, you know, you pick a day and we, we are continuously oppressed 
on every day on the calendar. So pick one, and I'm sure. You know, for me personally, I'm a Gomorrah woman. Uh, January 26th, it doesn't just mean the day that they all, you know, whatever. What, I don't even know what happened on that day. Who cares? <laughs> but for me, January 26th, as a Gomorrah woman, is the, the date of the Waterloo Creek Massacre on Gomorrah country. It's the day my, my people were invaded on Gomorrah country. So wherever you go on whatever day are acts of genocide. What about you, sis? I mean, like, coming into January 26 this year, I mean, it's coming off of the back of a huge movement. I mean, like, we Black Lives Matter has been ongoing our entire lives, our entire existence, since colonisation began, essentially. And But what happened last year was something that we haven't really seen yet, um, which was, like, masses of people coming together. I think, I, in my opinion... Um, I feel like we had thousands of people gathering here because it started in the United States first. It wasn't people here recognising what was happening in our own country or the injustice that was happening in our own lands. It was because, because it was happening somewhere else first. Something that was distant and so far away. we're always pointing away, yeah, away always from pointing. the issue. They're the problem. They're the issue over there. Look at them. Don't look at me. Um, and now we're coming into January 26th off the back of all of that where there was... And like, don't get me wrong, I think it was amazing, the, the mass gatherings that happened back in June. Um, but coming into January 26th this year, what are you kind of expecting and hoping for? It's a great question. I think um, irregardless of what I expect, irregardless of if it's Black Lives Matter, if it's uh, Black Power Movement, if it's NAIDOC, if it's Yarbin, if it's you're in Queensland, wherever you are, we are continuously fighting for our basic human rights. When we are fighting for environmental justice or we're fighting for our land, we don't sell our land to mining companies. We don't sell our lands uh, to gassing industry. We protect and preserve it. But also another really interesting aspect is we don't say, you can't come on here. You can't swim in the ocean. This ocean is for black people only. You can't um, come to this river. This river is for black people only. Yes, we have sacred sites. Yes, we have areas that are allocated to specific uh, indigenous communities and families. But if I go to uh, another uh, indigenous community and I'm like, I want to get in there, I'm not going to get a free pass just because I'm Aboriginal. There is law. There is regulations. There is bodies that make those decisions. So what we have to understand is recognise where we're positioned in this country without having basic human rights, but also recognise, even though this country does not want to recognise us, we are still functioning at high levels. We have such capacity to contribute to this country. Now, in relation to Black Lives Matter, I do want to celebrate that because what I think it spoke to was a sense in so many people that they wanted to participate. They wanted to stand up. Maybe they didn't know why. Maybe they didn't know what this calling was. But I like to call that is, is uh, ancient spirit. You know, we believe our land speaks to us. We believe nature, the earth, it speaks to us water. And I would like to say, or maybe I'm being a bit positive, but I think we have to be in these trying times. And if someone can get off their ass, if they can get their kids, put a face mask on them, make sure they're, they're um, you know, uh, what was the so social distancing and have that participation in that moment in time, that is indicative that we have a future. I think um, coming off the back of Black Lives Matter, um, I 
am the same way. You know, I feel confident about the numbers that we had turn up across this country. Um, but the 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 issue for me is um, that we keep the same energy. You know, we keep the we keep the same energy, and as individuals, and as um, you know, as white people who turn up on these platforms, your job is to dismantle the systems that you uphold. That's right. So that's where we go from from Black Lives Matter moving forward. You need to do the work. You need to look inside yourself. As I said, you you uphold the systems of white supremacy without even understanding or without even knowing. Um, so it's 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 turning up on on the days to the rally, deadly. But look within yourselves, look within the systems that you um, uphold, look within your employment, your family, your social networks, and dismantle. That's where it happens. That's where all the work happens. So we can rally all we want. We need to dismantle the systems yeah. that we uh, see upheld by white people in this country. Um, so that's, that's, for me, that's what I... Um, challenge you all to do you know go home to your families have the conversation at the dinner table at the breakfast table like black people have been doing our whole lives you know we're born into families of resistance so we're learning how to resist um, from the beginning you know we're the black kids learning when we go to school in kindergarten not to sing that anthem you know so if we can have those conversations at the age of five and six on you know at the dinner table you can too on the anthem, we've been seeing from a lot of um, political, high-profile figures, whoever they are, giving us, uh, amusing us and giving us these insulting gestures of, like, one-word changes to the anthem, um, you know, and, you know, whether it be to the anthem, singing the anthem in language at a big sporting event as well. Like all these like kind of really minimal things and they're saying, look, we've resolved it and they're getting kind of celebrated for it. And it's quite frustrating because we can't really ignore it. Like we can't, because it's frustrating when we look at it and it does have an impact on our mental health when we see, you know, these big high profile powerful figures claiming credibility, claiming any credit, saying, I've done the work, I've changed the system, I changed one word in the national anthem, there you go, my job's done for the day, be happy, leave me alone. And then, but we can't really get away from it because it's all over social media. And then you see a lot of people on social media then celebrating these changes and saying, you know, like, look how good it is. Look, look, take it, take this, you know, little crumb that we're giving you. We changed one word to the anthem. We sung the anthem in Three language. Words. Three yeah. words? Three, three, letters, three, three letters, letters, three, three letters, letters, three letters, three letters, yeah. And so seeing all of that online now as well and people saying like, oh, but we've, we've done the work. Like, look at what you've been given so far. And if you see people online that you think are showing up to the rallies and you might have thought have, you know, unlearned a little bit of their whiteness and you think that they're, you know, kind of understanding what it is to be an ally and they're doing the right things but then you see them kind of share this stuff online and be like oh look how good it is that this anthem was sung in language or look how good it is they're changing it to young and free to one and free <laughs> it's a, it's a, do you feel a little bit of disappointment when you see that i think so um but sometimes i have to remember and remind myself that um the British Empire have been colonising and invading countries for hundreds and hundreds of years before they got to us, so they got really good at it. And this is one of the things they got really good at, is making you 
feel like you have to be included by their little crummy gestures, right? But I don't... Firstly, like, I'll, you know, I'll set the record straight that you could sing um, one and free or you can sing young and free in any language, any black language, any foreign language, and it will still be racist. It will still not acknowledge our sovereignty, and that's the issue. So, you know, th these crummy gestures are Band-Aid effects, Band-Aid approaches to knives still in our backs. So you can't heal a wound when the knife is still in the back and you can't put a band-aid over it either. So address the real issue, come to the table with us. When we talk, listen. I think, um, again, I just want to give a bit of background. I grew up in a rural, a rural community, Broken Hill, and we were forced to not only learn the first verse, but learn the second verse. So if you did not know that whole line of that song, you could be suspended, you could um, have to stay after school, your parents could get a notice, just whatever it would be, there'd be ramifications. So let's reflect on that. You're forcing Indigenous children on their Indigenous land to sing an anthem that is so toxic and you're uh, planting these seeds of indoctrinization because that's exactly what it is, right? It's taking me years and years and years to be comfortable with even hearing the start of that anthem. But then let's add the second thing to what's happening now in contemporary society. So we're singing it in lingo. We're singing it in language. I have aunties that if they spoke language, right, to their children, yes, and I have a 60-year-old auntie. If she spoke any lingo to her child, that child would be removed and put in a dormitory, irregardless of what age. So what is happening in contemporary society, like colonisation, like Sis was saying, it's becoming stronger. It's a superbug, it's a disease, it's a bacteria. It will change, it will generate, it will reproduce, it will look like whatever you need it to look like so you'll be comfortable with it. Speak, singing Australian anthem in any language is disgusting. It's a disgrace and you have to remember why it's a disgrace. It's a disgrace because our language cost us our lives, our language cost us our culture, our language cost us our freedom. Um, <laughs> Knock off. And, <laughs> and just before we wrap up as well, I just want to make a point as well, and I'm sure you guys can add on to it too, when we talk about why you can't speak, I think we covered a lot here on why you can't speak for us. If you come to us with a question again about it, it's, it you will get a me, you'll get my back. And <laughs> the biggest thing as well is don't come to us with your tears. Don't come to us with your sympathy, you know? Come with ears. Come with ears. <laughs> That's the biggest thing. Come. Bring your Not tears, up. not tears, Just ears. <laughs> you know, because like there's, with the online space, with all the literature that's on out there, with all the connection that everyone has now, there's no longer any excuse. And there's also, like, no patience left for First Nations people either. Do you guys want to add on that? We've been patient for 230 years. We're done. We're done. <laughs> I think it sounds so cheesy, but I'm sure a lot of you, and I'm sure you girls as well, um, 
you know, the lyric, how can you sleep when your beds are burning? Like, why is this still sentiment still present in our society? How are you still okay to go to bed at night knowing what we're enduring? And I want to, I guess, thank you guys for being here, but even in saying that, I can't. I can't thank you because of what all us ladies and Indigenous people in this room have had to endure. I just want you to think about that. Well, we have to wrap up now. I just want to um, thank you, hitters from the bottom of my heart for coming on here and sharing your knowledge, sharing the space. It's often very triggering for us to have these conversations. It's really sad that we even have to have these conversations. You know, this isn't something we enjoy, um, but it's necessary and you really do demonstrate um, to me in particular hope. You know, when we have women like this, when we have matriarchs like this, when you see women like Tamika and Alicia, and there's many, there's many, many, many women like this that are sitting in the audience right now, you know? These are the women that are the backbone of everything, but these are also the women that need to be allowed to be vulnerable, that need to be given space, and they need to be left alone as well. But, you know, because these are the women that bring a lot of, lot of joy, and they make me very joyful, they make me very happy and they make me very um, grateful that I'm a black woman as well. So I really thank you guys for um, coming on here and sharing space. I know it's a lot to unload all of this stuff, but I really, really thank you for coming and everyone should be thanking them too. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for holding this space. Thank you. That's it for us tonight, guys. But um, yeah, enjoy your night and yeah. Don't come to us with tears. <laughs> Tamika Tai and Alicia Johnson in conversation with Sarah Khan recorded live at Nalu Warawi Murray on January 21, 2021 at the Australian Museum. Thanks for listening to this special live app of Race Matters. You can find us on Instagram at race underscore matters and every single episode of Race Matters is available at fbiradio.com forward slash race matters or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll catch you next time. Race Matters. 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 Race Matters.